Before we continue, one of the ways we keep all of our content for you, the listener, free of charge is our amazing sponsors, and today Anchor is one of those sponsors. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free, there's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcasts right from your phone or computer. Anchor is going to distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and everywhere podcasts are listened to, and you can even make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. It had Sting, Jeff Hardy, AJ Styles, and more in action. We're talking Sacrifice 2010 with Eric Bischoff joining us live to answer your questions. This is After 83 Weeks with Christy Olson. That's me. I'm Maria Menunos, and you're tuned in to AfterBuzz TV, the ESPN of TV talk. Now, let the buzz begin. Woo, hello, 83 Weeks fans. Welcome to your show, the show that is just for you. It's all about 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. And this week, they are talking Sacrifice 2010 from TNA. So much to discuss, and here to do it all with me is uh, George Ramosa, professional wrestler. You know him. That's me. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. And digital producer Steve Kaufman. How you doing today, Steve? I'm doing good. How are you doing today, Christy? I am fabulous, as I always am on our new nights now, Thursdays, because we also have joining us the man of the hour, Eric Bischoff. How you doing tonight, Eric? I'm doing great. I I was on my way to Boise, Idaho to pick up a new computer, and I made a wrong turn. I wasn't paying attention to my GPS, and I ended up here in Baja, Mexico. What the hell? Wow. That's crazy. You just need a margarita in your hand. I have one. (laughs) That's crazy that the trees are windy, but not him. Huh. Well, my hair—I have really stiff hair. Oh, it's okay. Thick and, you know, it's you know, you know. Eric Bischoff's hair is stuff of legend. This is clear. It's established eighty-three weeks canon. Right. Looks like he, he needs a little extra hairspray with all those waves, but we are glad that you've joined us tonight, Eric. And I want to give a shout out also to, to everybody who's joined us in the live chat, all the usual suspects. We love to see Michael and Ryan. Welcome Nick Maurice. Everybody is joining in on the conversations guys, get your questions ready for Eric. Like I said, we now do this Thursdays live on the 83 weeks channel and you can uh, fire away at him. And we actually have a few leftover residual questions from last week. Cause there was so much juicy stuff stuff to discuss but uh before we jump into those eric i need to hear more about this trip to boise idaho (laughs) so you didn't make it obviously but uh what were you going for well um i am a high-tech redneck as most of you who know me well know that especially steve he has to work with me on a regular basis trying to get my shit posted on youtube and all that and i realized on Monday, because I had signed up for this Zoom kind of seminar, and it started out fine, and an immediate, as soon as everybody got on, it crashed. So I did a little research, which I should have done in advance, but I didn't, and found out that my five-year-old uh, Airbook, my Mac Air, whatever it's called, only has about half the gigahertz, 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 that's a new word that I'm using whenever <laughs> I possibly can. Were you calling them giga, gigahertz like Back to the Future before no, I, that? I know it was gigahertz to me. Okay. I knew what it was. Well, I, I knew how to say it. I mm. didn't know what it was. And I didn't know that I only had half of what I needed. <laughs> so I, I got on my laptop and my five-year-old underpowered laptop, but I found a a, I bought an, an iMac, big 27-inch monitor, which, by the way, all of you, well, you, Christy, the rest of you kind of look the same. 
But Christy looks awesome on a 27 inch monitor. I've got to tell you, I'm pretty excited about it actually. Uh, <laughs> but I, I found this iMac and I ordered it and it said available for pickup. So I thought, well, hell, it'll save me. They said they couldn't ship it to me till the end of June, or end of May or first of June. So I thought, screw it, I'll go get it. And then when I found the store that I could pick it up at, it was in Boise, Idaho. Boise, Idaho is 847 miles from where I live. What did I do? I grabbed my dog, I jumped in my truck and I drove to Boise. It took me two and a half days, but it was great. And now I've got a new iMac and I'm so freaking excited about it. I, Were I have the to... bathrooms closed on the way? Like, did you have a problem finding a place to take a rest stop? No, all the gas stations were open in the convenience stores. What I had a hard time with is eating because there was nothing open but fast food restaurants. So I, uh, I did a world tour of fast food and undid all the three, two and a half months of diets and exercise and keto diets, and all the stuff I've been doing. I undid it in two and a half days. Oof. I have to, I have to ask. When so it sounds like you were in a hotel room in Idaho before you came back to Wyoming. When you're in that hotel room with the brand new iMac, did you unbox it there, or were you able to have the the self control to wait till you got home? No, I, I picked it up at eleven thirty. They made me wear a mask; it was mandatory to get into the store to pick up my box and leave. I'll I'll post a picture on Twitter. It's kind of funny actually. <laughs> so I put on my mask. They came out. I didn't even get to go in the store. I had to wait outside, and they brought me my iMac. I, I threw it in the truck, I jumped in my truck, and I drove. My intent was to drive all the way home, but I, I just couldn't make it. So I got to West Yellowstone, Montana, which is right on the border of the west border of Yellowstone National Park. Imagine that. <laughs> and, and I spent the night there mostly because I found a bar that was actually open. <laughs> it was called the Buffalo Bar. And they serve, not only did they serve food in this bar, but they served my favorite beer, uh, which is called Cold Smoke um, Scottish Ale. So I decided I was going to hold up in West Yellowstone. Yes, the chat roll says you used your computer as an excuse to go to the bar and they love it. My wife would probably go, yeah, he, he probably did. Yeah. <laughs> And that is okay. Wow. What a trek you've been on since we've last seen you, Eric. And now we are about to uh, grill you for the next little while about TNA sacrifice. And, uh, you know, I always have to ask you too, now that we're doing this Thursdays, if you took in NXT and AEW last night. Nope. No. Oh, he's, listen, ratings are way down. You're not the only one who isn't watching anymore. AEW was good though. So I won't, no spoilers here. I did want to... And, and, and Chrissy, I want to make it really clear because I, you know, I give these quick, flippant sounding answers, and it's not that um, I don't want to watch or I have anything against anybody. I just cannot get myself to watch any more empty arena wrestling than I have to. And when I say I have to, that means that somebody figuratively has a gun to my head for some reason. If I knew I was going to be covering it, we we're going to be talking about it, I'd watch it. I'd be angry about it, but I would do it. Um, but I just can't watch it. I will as soon as crowds come back and it feels like a wrestling event again and it doesn't just drive me nuts watching it. I will because I want AEW to succeed. I want NXT to succeed. I want everybody to succeed. 
but I just can't stomach watching these empty arena shows. It's just like, I don't know what it's like. I can't, it's like going to a Rolling Stones concert with, you know, eardrums in and not being able to hear anything. I just can't do it. You're right. That doesn't sound like a whole lot of fun. Uh, well, good thing that we are stepping in our, our way back machine and talking about TNA Sacrifice 2010. I wanted to, before we get really into it, see if we could shed a little more light on this Jim Ross thing. So I did a little bit of research and on this episode of 83 Weeks, you couldn't quite recall what had happened when there was potential of bringing him in in 2010. And so I, I did a little research and um, Jim Ross actually kind of explained what went down and said that when he met with the Carter family, it was actually in like late 2009. And what he wanted was control of the company, not just to be an announcer, but to be a company executive as well. Does any of that ring a bell? Do you remember that being um, one of his demands that he wanted to be in power? Uh, I, I do not because I wasn't privy to any of those conversations. Uh, I think I'm actually the one that connected Jim to Dixie Carter initially because I happened to have Jim's contact info and Dixie didn't. Um, but beyond that, I, I, I wasn't involved in any of the discussions and I never really asked Jim and I never really asked Dixie what went wrong uh, or what, why it didn't happen. So I would, <clears throat> I would uh, believe whatever Jim had to say on the matter. Were you, do you remember whether you were advocating for him to come in as solely an announcer or you were kind of pushing for him to have a, have, take the reins as well? I, I, I don't think there was any chance in the world, Jim Ross, and it wasn't a discussion between Dixie and I. I mean, the, the conversation between Dixie and I, it was something to the effect of, hey, Jim's possibly interested in coming in. We needed a good play-by-play -play announcer. I was advocating for, for a good play-by-play -play announcer. And certainly Jim Ross was the best we could hope for. Um, but I didn't get into any discussions about his role or what it would be or wouldn't be. I can assure you that no one, you know, uh, was going to come in and take control of anything either from Dixie, who loved the position that she was in, and she should have, it's not a shot, it's just, it is what it is, nor would the Carters have allowed anybody to come in outside of the family and take control of the company. So it, if that was Jim's ask, it was, it was an ask that was never going to be met. Um, and I don't know for sure that that was. If Jim says it was, it was, but uh, I, you know, I don't know. Interesting. Well, I feel like we still got to the bottom of that a little bit, right, guys? I think so, too. Um, kind of following up a little bit from last week, because I know we had a little technical difficulties last week. I was talking about being selfish in pro wrestling, and I think you were mentioning um, maybe there's no place of being, of, of being selfish in pro wrestling, but I was talking about And George more... has been thinking about it for the last week because he feels that he was misunderstood, and now he wants to set it all straight, and he's been thinking about it for seven days, so everybody just really pay attention to George right yeah, now. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with that. <laughs> but... We can send you screenshots of the text thread. But, but I was just kind of mentioning, like, in terms of maybe seeing your, like, for example, when somebody gets into the wrestling business, nobody's, most people want to set out to be the main event of WrestleMania, but maybe along the way, they, you feel like maybe your character isn't going the way that you want it to be, maybe because maybe you're not pushing yourself strong enough. What, what is that balance of jobbing out as opposed to like, hey, man, I really want to be in the main event of WrestleMania. I got to get a little pushy with maybe management in terms of, getting my character and getting just whatever it is that I want to do, my goals accomplished. Well, see, to me, George, that's not selfish. That's just 
you're advocating for yourself. You're pushing yourself to, to your own limits and you're trying to you know, exceed the position that you're in, for lack of a better way of saying it. So when I think of selfish, to me, selfish is wanting something or, or perhaps acting in a way that benefits no one but yourself. If you're wanting to push your character, if you're wanting to push your abilities, if you're wanting to um, stretch your ability to, to, to carry a storyline, you need to have that. That's drive. That's ambition. That's vision for yourself. Uh, that's not the same thing as being selfish. Now, in, to me, now, to, to your real question, you know, how far is too much? How hard should someone push and advocate for themselves and, and, and try to break out of whatever bubble they happen to be in? Um, look, I mean, you can't piss people off along the way. You know, you could push, but I think more than anything, you have to prove by example that you're not selfish. You know, one of the, the things that always, and by that, I mean, if you're going to come to management, if you were, if you were going to come to me, George, if you worked at WCW and you came to me and you said, Eric, I, I need 20 minutes. I've got a great idea. It's a great angle. So I laid out the story. I've got it outlined for you. I, I really think it'd be good because it would advance my character in my story, but it would also advance the character and story of wrestler X and wrestler Y and wrestler Z. So you're coming at me from the approach of, yeah, I want to try something that'll help get me over, but guess what? It's going to get other people over too. And here's how and why it'll get them over. That's an entirely different conversation than dude, how come I'm not in the main event? Oh. I should be in the main event because I got a better drop kick. <laughs> you know, okay, whatever. Or and, and that's that's just me trying to be funny. But you know the difference. You know, if you're advocating for yourself solely to benefit yourself and not really the company and not really the people you're working with, I'm not. I mean, you're not going to get a lot of my time. But if you've got a story that's thought through that benefits you, that benefits the company, that benefits the people you're working with. That's an entirely different conversation. And no matter how hard you may bang on my door for three hours trying to get that meeting, once we come face to face, if, if, a story, if, if that proposal is laid out that way, I'm all ears. As opposed to, hey man, I should be in the main event or even more subtly, I've got this idea for me to wrestle in the main event. Here's how I'm going to get over and you know, here's, here's my promo when I'm done. Well, that's, that's just very one dimensional. Just a quick follow-up, because we saw a lot of uh, Zach Ryder saying kind of the same same thing as far as the point that I'm trying to get, where he should have went to Vince and said, hey, man, like, what's going on? Like, I'm selling a lot of merchandise. Like, you know, he's, he's, he's saying he should have said that or he should have done that to Vince. Is that the kind of approach that you kind of saw was available for talent to have in the WWE? You know, I wasn't there long enough to be able to discuss <laughs> that. I can tell you that while I was there, um, a lot of talent that I saw pitched a lot of ideas to Vince. I mean, you know, the door to Vince's office, you know, needed a turnstile, you know, to, to control the people going in and out of there that were pitching changes to the format that they wanted or ideas that they had or questions about how they could improve their character, whatever the conversations were. I, and I generally wasn't privy to those because they were one-on-one -on -one conversations between Vince and the talent. So I, I can't tell you um, how, ex I can only tell you what I saw. And I saw Vince being 
a very accessible and pretty open-minded about hearing ideas. Uh, but going back to Zach Ryder or the way you characterized his, his comments, and I realize you just you paraphrased them and just touched on them. But again, there's a difference between, and I'm not going to use Vince, but I'll use myself just for a lot of reasons. But if someone were to come to me and say, hey, what's going on? I'm selling a lot of merchandise. The fans are popping for me, which I would hate. That automatically would get me hot. But <laughs> you know, the audience is giving me a good reaction. I'm selling a lot of merchandise. My social media is blowing up. What's going on? How come I'm not getting a push? That's not going to go far. But take that same set of values. And now if a wrestler were to walk into me and say, Eric, I've noticed my merchandise is going up. I'm getting a great reaction. My social media is blowing up. I think I have a way to help get myself over and take advantage of this and I think it'll be better for the company because of this or good for the company because of this. And it'll get these two or three people I'm working with over even more than they already are. You're saying the same thing, but you're not being confrontational and saying, Hey, what's going on? Why am I not getting a push? Well, because you haven't come up with any ideas because you haven't really contributed anything because you're not really trying. Now I'm also going to say, because after saying that my Twitter feed is going to blow up because I'm sure there are plenty of people who have pitched ideas and didn't get a favorable response. And what I will say to those people is, why'd you quit? Why'd you stop trying? Come up with a better idea. Take another run at it. Eventually, you're going to get your shot. If for no other reason, I think, at least in WWE, by showing persistence and commitment and coming back with fresher ideas that are maybe more polished than the first set. So, you know, it's just, look, it's salesmanship. It's just kind of common sense, you know? It, it, but again, it goes back to being selfish. If someone were to come in to me and say, hey, my, my merchandise sales are going up, I'm getting a great reaction, my Twitter feed's blowing up, my social media's blowing up, how come I'm not getting more of a push? Now I'm on the defensive. Now, now I got to justify why you're not getting a push. And that's an entirely different conversation than listening to you tell me your ideas and hearing that they not only benefit you, they benefit other people, and it might be good for business. That's an entirely, they're two different things. John Michaels. That. I hope all the wrestlers out there are taking notes. <laughs> John Michaels tells a pretty good story about that in his book that one day he came to Vince McMahon and asked, how do I become the top guy? Who do I have to talk to? And Vince said, you pretty much just had that conversation by asking. Um, pro wrestling reviews in the super chat. It was surprising when it came out that Chris Canyon is gay, was gay during your tenure in WCW. Was there a homophobia problem backstage? Uh, not that I was aware of. Look, humans are humans. People are weak. They have flaws, character flaws and others, other types of flaws. Um, there may have been with some people, but it wasn't an outward, uh, you know, there weren't people walking around with, you know, anti-homosexual flags on their jackets or tattoos on their foreheads or anything like that. So um, not, not that I was aware of, but generally speaking, back then at least, it's not something that people would advertise if they had those views. 
Well, something else that I wanted to ask you about was kind of the attitude at that time. We saw a lot of blood in the open of this pay-per-view. What was the thoughts about showing blood on TV at the time? You guys went so back and forth in WCW. This is 2010. It's a whole different age. Uh, was it frowned upon, encouraged? Um, I didn't like it. I made my feelings known. Usually when you saw blood, I shouldn't say usually, the, the, the times that I recall off the top of my head, and probably because I just watched the episode, but usually when I remember seeing somebody get blood, it was Ric Flair, it was Hulk Hogan, it was guys who had been around for a while and relied upon that or have had used that so much during their careers that they felt it was necessary in a, in a given moment. Um, it wasn't really an issue with a lot of the younger talent. Um, I personally didn't care for it, but the network didn't have a problem with it. And evidently Nixie didn't have a problem with it. So it was never really an issue in TNA, not at all like it was in WCW. Uh, as far as going back to the TNA and the impact zone where you guys shot at the soundstage, uh, considering you were in that area as opposed to the arenas that you personally were a big part of producing in the Monday Nitro eras, were there, aside from the audience, were there any kind of limitations that you wanted to do, but you couldn't do because of the space that you were in? Yeah, it's funny, George, that you bring that. Oh, man. Uh-oh. Big, Pel <laughs> big pelican just flew over. Oh, wow. Holy I see it. Oh, my God. That was a Mexican pelican. Those damn things are big down here. Oh, my God. Anyway, yeah, George, I was just thinking about that this morning because – it wasn't just, you know, the soundstage and the lack of audience and the kind of sterile, unnatural kind of feeling that that forced you to present your product to us. But, you know, in a soundstage, there weren't a lot of areas, you know, even in the smallest of arenas, you know, a 5,000, 7,000 seat arena somewhere, there's enough backstage area where you can do your pre-tapes. You can have a live segment if you need to have a live segment you know, outside of the arena. You can, there's just more room to work because you don't want all your content coming right from the, the, the ring area, so to speak. You wanna you know, move it around a little bit, make it feel bigger. And there were times at the soundstage at Universal where Universal Management would basically say, look, you, you, you have access to the soundstage area and the soundstage area only. You don't get to use any of the production offices. You don't get to use any of the outside area. In other words, we had to shoot all of our, our pre-tapes, all of our promos, all of our interviews that take place during the course of a day that weren't produced live. We had to, or, to, or even live to tape. We had to produce those in such a small, confined area and a lot of it was dark and dingy and didn't really have the kind of backdrop that you wanted to have. And it, it just, you know, it was just one more thing that made everything feel smaller and, and less interesting to watch. That kind of makes it sound like center stage in Atlanta, sort of the same uh, obstacles, right? You know, it was better than center stage. Uh, you know, the sound stage was better. And, you know, going back and looking at this episode of, of Sacrifice 2010, you know, it had a great look. I pointed it out in the podcast. You know, David Sahadi, who was the director at the time, did a great job. David Sahadi was a director and a producer, I believe, at WWE for a while. Uh, and he was there during the Monday Night Wars, and then he came over to TNA. 
Um, he was great. Kevin Sullivan, not the wrestler, the producer, also did a great job. Keith Mitchell, who I think is still at AEW, or I know is at AEW, he was working the truck. Um, so they did a you know, for all the criticism that TNA gets and Dixie Carter gets and I get or whoever gets, you know, we, they did a great job of making that soundstage look as good as it possibly could. But it, it was tough. And center stage was whew, center stage was a, a dumpster compared to <laughs> the soundstage at Universal. Um, Eric Brennan has a question. I'll paraphrase because he was asking how you would have fixed everything that Dixie was allowing. And I understand you probably didn't want to, but would there have, I think the paraphrase the question, would there have been an environment and circumstance in which you would have come over and completely taken over TNA wrestling? No, because for the same reason that Jim Ross wasn't going to be able to come in and take over TNA. I think one of the asks that Paul Heyman had when Dixie and Paul Heyman were talking was Paul Heyman wanted 100% creative control and Dixie wasn't going to give it to him. So it, it, it wasn't even a viable option. It wasn't something that was worth thinking about for, for 15 seconds of my life because it, it had the, I, I had no more chance of making that happen than me wishing myself um, on Mars. You know, it's just not going to happen. So, no. And, and even more importantly than that, I didn't want that. I didn't want to be a part of management of TNA. I, and I made that clear in a podcast. I expressly included very specific language that made sure that everybody understood that I had no responsibility contractually to participate in anything that would look like management, hiring, firing, any of that. I didn't want anything to do with it. So I, not only was I not interested in it, I was way more interested in making sure nobody got confused about the matter. My theory on oh, the Jim Ross. I like that. My theory on the Jim Ross of it all is actually the amount of money he was asking. The only thing that would have made sense is like, well, I've, yeah, I'll run the whole thing for that amount, for the amount of money I'll want to even go there. That it's almost a door in the face technique. Yeah. And listen, I, I'm a good, you know, Jim is a good friend of mine. He, he's, he's a partner in our podcast network. I don't want this to be misconstrued or blown up to be any bigger than it is. But the truth is Jim never ran a wrestling company. Jim, you know, Jim was an upper management, had a lot of influence and was participating in the booking during WCW's worst days. And he still didn't have management of the company. So I'm not saying that he wasn't capable necessarily, but he certainly didn't have a track record that he could point to and say, look, this is what I did over here. You know, here's some of the great things I did. Here's some of the not so great things I did. Here's what I, here's what I would do if I came here. Jim never had that. You know, Jim was a lead announcer in WCW, worked closely with booking. He was working very closely with the booking committee when I was hired there in whatever year that was, 1991, I believe. Um, he worked very closely with Bill Watts, which is one of the biggest train wrecks in the history of professional wrestling. So it's not like Jim came in with a resume that would make one think he would be the ideal candidate to run a wrestling company. Jim was, is the best announcer probably on planet Earth. Jim had a tremendous amount of experience and had seen a lot, but he'd never done it. 
That's true. We cannot argue with that. And uh, I want to get to a super chat from last week from West 1776, because this is a really good one. He wanted to know, Eric, what would you have said in response to a young child stopping you in the airport and asking you whether wrestling is real? He says he's just curious how you treated younger fans when you were the president of WCW or how you would handle that. Um. I guess it depends how old the kid was and whether I sensed he or she had a sense of humor. Um, if I sensed that he or she had a sense of humor and was probably 12 or 14 years old, I'd have fun with it. Um, but if it was a younger kid, um, I, I probably would respond with, with something that would sound like, well, wait a minute, do you enjoy watching it? And if so, do you, is it real to you when you watch it? Do you have fun? And if the answer is yes, I'd probably say, there you go. And I'd walk away. So I'd answer it without answering it. I like that. That, that reminds just, me something. Just, I was just to throw it out there. Pro wrestling is 100% real, uh, the same way that movies are. Uh, but from a business standpoint, I was always curious about ratings, especially for TNA Impact around this time. Like, let's say one week you get like a 1.0. The next week you get like a 1.5 from a business standpoint, from ad revenue, is that, is anything change as far as like how, how you guys sell uh, ad revenues at, just from maybe a one week jump of like a 0.5 or even like a 0.4? No. And keep in mind, TNA didn't sell advertising on the network. That was Spike TV. TN, TNA got paid a license fee, much like WWE does today. Uh, they got paid a license fee for the content, the network then takes that content, which includes the advertising, and then markets it to advertisers through their ad sales department. So TNA would not have anything to do with it, neither did WCW. In WCW, we didn't sell ads. Now we sold sponsorships internally, that's a different thing. But um, ad sales is hand was handled in TNA by Spike and not by TNA. In WCW, ad sales was handled by Turner Ad Sales in New York, not by WCW. Ad sales, I'm guessing, I don't know this, in WWE are handled through Fox, not WWE. So with that being said, that's one answer to the, to the question or one part of the answer. The other part is when ad sales, now I've never worked in ad sales, so I'm going to give you my basic rudimentary understanding of it. Um, you're selling, you go into the upfronts, cable upfronts, if you're a cable television, and you market your, con your, your shows and the advertising within them to a large group of advertisers. You come to them with your demographics, what your projected ratings are going to be based on the previous year, usually with maybe a, a factor of, five or 10% upwards, assuming growth, okay? You go in with your demos, you show them what your, you know, all the, you know, kids, you know, six to, or six to 11 and preteens, 11 to 13, whatever the, whatever the demo breakdowns are. And you go in and you represent those demographics, again, based on previous year's performance. And then you assign a CPM or a cost per thousand to whatever demographic that you're selling to come up with a base rate for an ad. And you sell that, hopefully you sell 60%, 70% of your ads during the upfront season. The remainder of your ads are sold throughout the rest of the year, 
they're kind of opportunistic buys, I guess. And those are marketed separately. Now, if your ratings happen to go way up over the course of a quarter or two, you've got some inventory left at the end of the year that you could maybe mark up based on what you sold during the upfronts. Or unfortunately, you may have to, to, to downsell it if you're not really meeting your numbers and the numbers that you projected early in the year. So um, everything was done over the course of a quarter or two quarters or previous year and, and projections. The week-to-week fluctuations didn't really matter. Um, I, I like that. I, as someone who's on the YouTube side of ad, ad sales and ad revenue, that's fascinating to hear how it works on television. I guess the quick follow-up would be, would you, would it be common in a license agreement to have any share in that ad sale or is, or is that what you license away? You know, it, it depends. Um, I, I would, I, I would doubt, I don't know. Mm. Wasn't involved in the process, but I would doubt that WWE has any uh, rev share just because of the size of the license fee that they got. Usually if you're getting a maximum license fee, you get no rev share. If you're getting a minimal license fee or in some cases, no license fee, which is called a buy-on, then yeah, you may get 50% of the revenue or 20% or 30% or whatever you can negotiate, but that's because you're not getting any license fee it's a dangerous position to be in because if, if your show doesn't do as well and your ratings aren't as high as the network has projected and they're not able to sell that ad time, you're not going to be around very long. Um, so it's, it, I think in today's environment, it's unusual. Those types of deals never last. Do you know where you see those types of deals primarily are like used to be in the outdoor fishing shows and hunting shows <clears throat> that you'd see on Saturday morning? A lot of those were buy-ons or rev shares, <clears throat> but they don't last long. Well, I know advertisers usually want to see the top stars on the show. And this week, we all got some huge news that Becky Lynch, who I know is one of your favorites, will be stepping away from the ring because she is pregnant. Have you ever had a pregnancy throw a wrench into a storyline? Not into a storyline. <laughs> Just into your real life? <laughs> Let's go back to 1984. <laughs> <laughs> um, Thomas Gidlow in the chat has a very interesting question. Uh, the January 4th, 2010 impact on Monday night, the one-off, he wants to know if you felt WWE putting Bret Hart on the Monday night raw opposed to it was a direct countermeasure. I have no idea. I, I kind of doubt it. Um, giving my, given my impression of, of Vince and everybody at WWE, I don't think they really were too worried about TNA and I doubt that they counter-programmed in any way. I'm, if I had to bet money, I would bet that it was in the plan prior to us announcing and they just went up with their plan. But I, I, no, I don't think that they counter-programmed in any way. I don't either. I think a January, a Monday, January 4th is a big ratings night to try to get yourself ahead in the ratings for the year that you would put some stops out regardless of what your competition is. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and Michael Mackey in the chat wants to know who is Mrs. B's favorite wrestler? Oh, I don't know. We'll have to get her on the show and ask her sometime. Uh, <laughs> I would love that. Yeah. Maybe next week we'll do a, a Mr. and Mrs. B kind of 
after 83 weeks episode. She'd like that too. That's perfect. We'll listen to her podcast that week as well. And we'll do some follow-ups to hers too. There you go. She's got a great podcast. I've listened to it. It is fantastic. Great life advice. A little different from what we do over here. Yeah. We're not improving anybody's life on a day-to-day <laughs> basis, but goddamn, we have fun. You guys are improving mine. So I don't I mean, take that for what it's worth. Uh, I'm, I'm going to create a little controversy and throw Steve under the bus a little bit. Um, you, Cause he mentioned the January 4th episode of TNA impact. How did you feel of that episode overall, Eric? Because somebody on this panel think it was, I think he mentioned trash. Yeah, you know what the truth is? I'd have to go back and look at it before I can <laughs> tell you. I don't know. I can't remember what it looked like. So I, you know, it was a minute ago. So I'd have to go back and look at it. I may, you know, I may agree with Steve. <laughs> I, may kick him, I may kick him in the skull next time I see him. It's kind of, It's going to be a long time till anyone sees anyone. <laughs> <laughs> well, one one guy that Eric does see every once in a while is your good friend Hulk Hogan. You kind of teased a few weeks ago that maybe you two were gonna hop on YouTube or somewhere and do something together, or um, sit down and and chat a little bit with the fans. Any updates on any of that? You guys got anything in the works? God, I don't recall saying that. <laughs> well, I may have read a little more into it. You you made you sort of made it sound like maybe you two would be trying to do some stuff together in the future. Did I no, read too much in Eric? Look, I I am I am look up high, Google high tech redneck. You'll see my smiling face. That is me. But I make Hulk Hogan look I, I mean, I look like Elon Musk compared to Hulk <laughs> when it comes to technology. So, uh, no, getting Hulk on YouTube is never going to happen. I think maybe I said I would, you know, I would have a conversation with him and then cover that conversation or get that information and, and share it on YouTube. But I wouldn't even attempt in my wildest dreams of trying to coordinate something on YouTube with Hulk. It's just not going to happen. And I know a guy that's really good at YouTube. You should give me his number. Um, <laughs> uh, JJ Gonzalez. Yeah, brother. I'm glad you said it, not me. <laughs> uh, JJ Gonzalez in the chat had a really interesting question. Since we're talking a lot about uh, licensing fees, why was there never an Eric Bischoff Mattel action figure? Which I think the broader question would be, would, would that have been included in your appearance contract with the WWE when you came there? No, I, would, I mean, I think I did have a couple action figures in WWE. I'm sure I did. I think I have them stuffed in a box somewhere in a storage unit. There's a a possibility that that was the previous uh, manufacturer, Jack Specific, because I have an Eric Bischoff action figure from Jack Specific, but Mattel took over around 2010-ish or so, 2009-2010. So maybe that's maybe since the last 10 years why there hasn't been an Eric Bischoff action figure, which I'm not too familiar. I do know a guy that knows a lot about action figures, though. (laughs) He'll know, but he's not on on this chat. Yeah, no, well, by 2010, I had already been off the roster for, what, three or four years? So I guess if I was Mattel, I wouldn't be too excited about investing in all the work that goes into creating an action figure for somebody that hasn't been around in four years. Um, And I was a peripheral character. So, you know, I'm sure they have a list that skews from the top to the bottom, top being the people who are the most popular. And I'm sure I was somewhere down towards the bottom of that list. And 
they didn't feel like investing in an action figure for a guy that wasn't even on the roster made a lot of sense. And I would probably make that same choice if I were them. And I would imagine some of those, some of those legend, like people who aren't on TV for a while, but do have an action figure usually have legends contracts. And if memory serves, I don't believe that was something you ever partook in since 2010. No, I've never had a, a legends contract. And that's probably another reason why, because that would involved in a negotiation and, you know, I don't know. I just don't think I'm not trying to be humble or anything. I'm just being realistic. I just don't think there would be much of a market for, for an Eric Bischoff action figure in 2010, especially since I was with TNA and Mattel was with WWE would make even less sense. Well, I think, I think box of gimmicks.com if we can get a good price. I love my old WWE action figures. I mean, there was a while when those things first came out. Did you see my hands in those action figures? (laughs) I had these big ripped biceps and I had these hands like a six foot eight monster. It was like awesome. I had huge hands. I'd take it, I'd bring it home to my wife and say, look, honey, I got big hands. (laughs) She wouldn't bite. Didn't take it. Didn't take the bait. That's fun. Going back to TNA for a minute. I've been meaning to ask you this for weeks because we've seen Lacey Von Eric pop up on several of the pay-per-views that you guys have covered now. A couple years ago, she and Brooke Hogan were planning to start an all-women's promotion together. That seems like something that they would have given you a call and asked your advice on. Were you privy to any of what was going on with that at the time? And do you know what happened with it? Uh, no, I, I wasn't. And if I'm not mistaken, mistaken here, um, I think Brooke was talking to Dixie Carter about that. Brooke and Dixie had developed a pretty good relationship while Brooke was a part of TNA. Dixie was interested in helping Brooke establish herself as a songwriter and a singer in country music. So they had developed a pretty good relationship. And I think that was a conversation that took place between Dixie and and Brooke and whoever else was in that mix. I had heard about it, um, but no, they they didn't reach out to me. Well, Brooke released a country album like a year or two ago. It was actually pretty good. Not actually. I mean, it was, of course, very good. (laughs) Brooke gets a a lot of heat because her last name's Hogan. Uh, Well, her last name's actually Balea, but she goes by Brooke Hogan. Um, But Brooke is a a really, really, and I'm not saying this because she's Hulk's daughter. She's a really sweet person and a very talented person. I, I really hope she makes it in music because that's her passion and her love. Uh, but, you know, you, you, you're your last, when, you, when you're known as Brooke Hogan, certain doors are going to open and certain doors are going to slam shut. That's the bad thing about being the daughter or the son, in some cases, of somebody that's real high profile that has a controversial kind of uh, persona. Hmm. Were, there, were there ever any thoughts of uh, Brooke Hogan stepping into the ring for like a one-time match at all? She didn't want to, I, you know, I, it's too bad too, because she'd have been good at it. She's very athletic. She's a big girl. She could hold her own. I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to get in a fight with her in real life. I mean, she's, she's a handful um, and she's tough and she's got the right attitude, but I think she was so concerned about being typecast and pigeonholed in that role. She already had a big enough mountain to climb overcoming you know, the wrestling stigma in the music industry, because it is 2010. Um, 
people looked at wrestling a little differently in 2010 than they do today uh, in the world of entertainment. I don't know in the world of music if that's ever changed, really. But I think she had enough of a stigma that she was trying to overcome that stepping into the ring and being more involved uh, in, in that aspect of the business would have only made that mountain steeper and higher. Uh, Mar Maurice Barlow in the chat is asking the question, I think we wanted to ask since we got here, what do you think about Mike Tyson releasing that boxing video and the rumors that he's trying to do something with AEW? Oh, no, he was announced last night on AEW's show that he oh, will then be never mind. appearing at... That he'll be appearing at it's double or nothing coming yes. up, right? So he's gonna be there. Well, I, I think it's great. I, I'm a you know, I'm a fan of Mike Tyson. Um, I've watched his boxing videos, mind boggling at his age. He's scary as a boxer. Um, as a person, did you ever see his documentaries that he did? I think it was on AE. There was a multi part documentary about. Uh, about Mike Tyson, if I'm mm. not mistaken, it was A and E. Mike is, you know, if you know Mike Tyson's history, the way he grew up, how he grew up, what he had to overcome, um, he's a fascinating person to me. And look, he's got his own baggage. You know, he. I'm not even going to go into it. We all know what it is, um, but he's overcome that. And he's evolved and he's, he's a gentle person, I think, that just happens to be one of the scariest people that ever laced up a pair of boxing gloves. So I'm looking for, if he's going to get involved, what is he, 53 or something like that? I'm looking forward to it if it happens. I think, he, you know, rumor is he's going to fight Evander Holyfield, which is awesome, I think. I think they'll have a blast doing it. I think fans will eat it up. Uh, as far as him appearing in AEW, good for them. You know, Mike Tyson is a big name still. He's all over social media. Hell, he was in the movie Hangover. So, you know, come on. Uh, he's a cool dude. And I'm, I'm happy to hear that he's going to be on AEW. I may tune in just because of that. When WWE signed him back in the day, you've admitted that kind of left you shaking in your boots a little bit. Now that AEW has him for an appearance, do you expect WWE to counteract with some huge celebrity at their next pay-per-view? I don't. I don't. Again, I, I still don't believe that AE, or WWE reacts that way to news like a Mike Tyson or TNA going live on January 4th. They're going to pretty much stick to their plans. Now, they may strategically or tactically adjust some of their long-term plans accordingly. That would be my guess. I don't know that. But I would be pretty confident that would be the case. But do I think anybody's sitting in a room right now going, oh, my God, Mike Tyson's going to be on AEW. What are we going to do? Oh, my God, who should we book? I, I, I don't <laughs> think those conversations are taking place. No, but if they did, they would sound exactly like that. Maybe. <laughs> God damn, they got Mike Tyson. Jesus Christ. Third grade shit. Why aren't we doing something like that? God damn, Bruce, get to work. <laughs> Love that. Poor Bruce. There's no coming back from that, guys. And we are almost out of time anyway. I want to give a huge thank you to everybody who joined us live in the chat. It was really lit tonight. Holy moly. We have a ton of people watching. Thank you to every single one of you. Uh, I guess our Thursday night move is a good one. So, And thank you, Eric, for your time as always. Thank you from the, from the beaches of Baja. From the beaches. God, Amy's birds are huge. 
from the from from the beaches of Baja. It's been a pleasure being with you guys. Now, if Steve can eventually get me hooked up so that I can do my own YouTube broadcast. Now I've got Wirecast, mm-hmm. I've got all the tools, I got the horsepower. If Steve can finally convince me how or teach me how, I'll do some follow-ups to this and try to boost some interest here. But hey, one other thing before I go. You guys, I saw on social media, on Twitter, you guys had a promotion for the show that looked really, really good. Like all four of us were in a box and the graphics were really tight. It looked really professional. I thought, my God, I can't wait to be on that show. Oh, wait, that's my show. So... <laughs> Hats off to you guys. You did a great job. Thanks, Thank Christy. Thank you so much, Eric. Yes, that, that makes me very happy. That was my late night work, so I appreciate that. Well, and thank you for your time. We'll be covering, you guys get an Ask Eric Anything episode of 83 Weeks next week. So keep all those questions coming, and we'll see you right back here on the 83 Weeks channel. On behalf of Eric Bischoff, George Herboza, Steve Kaufman, and myself, thanks for joining us, and we will see you next week. Take care. Our founder, Kevin Undergaro, and me, Maria Menunos, would like to thank you for tuning in to AfterBuzz TV. Remember, we're not just the first, we're the biggest in the world, and we're the only destination for all your favorite TV shows. Whatever you crave, we've got it. So go to AfterBuzzTV.com and check out our lineup. Buzz you later. <laughs> the views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.